0: Now let's uh, turn again to that passage that we read in Luke chapter 2, Luke 2, 21 to 40. We're generally speaking in a reflective mood at this time of year as we come at uh, this the last Sunday of 2013. Uh, we are looking back on a year that is almost finished and we're also looking forward to some extent uh, to 2014, which is drawing uh, so close. And there's a sense in which this passage here is also looking in two directions. Uh, There is a community of faith uh, representing the Old Testament uh, people of God uh, in Anna and in Simeon. Uh, We have the rites of uh, circumcision And purification, part of the Old Testament ceremonial law. A law that Jesus himself was coming to fulfill. And in fulfilling that law, that ceremonial law, would do away with its necessity. Uh, So we have this looking in two directions. We have the, the Old Testament community. We have the law associated with that era and we have the the dawning of the era of fulfillment. The promise is being fulfilled in the the baby Jesus who is carried helplessly to the temple by his mother Mary. We're going to just look at the story as it unfolds uh, for us in Luke's account Uh, We have, first of all, Jesus and the law. And then we have uh, the encounter with Simeon in the temple. And then thirdly, the encouragement from Anna. So let's look first then at Jesus and the law. Jesus and the law. On the eighth day, Luke tells us, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus. The name... The angel had given him before he was conceived. On the eighth day, Jesus was circumcised. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant that God had given to Abraham. Covenant was a special agreement that God made with Abraham and his people. Uh, now this agreement or this covenant meant that there were obligations that were placed upon Abraham and the people. They had to walk before God and be blameless. They were given the law of God to keep. God, for his part, gave promises. He said to Abraham, "Abram, I will make you into a great nation. Through you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And I'll give you this land, Canaan, to your descendants. Now, God didn't have to give promises to Abraham. Uh, Abraham certainly hadn't deserved them. He hadn't earned them. But God, in his grace, gave these promises to Abraham. And he said, this is my covenant. And you're to walk in it. You're to respond with faith and obedience to this arrangement. That's important. The blessings weren't earned, but if Abraham and his people were to stay in covenant, they had to walk in the ways of God. And those who refused to do that, instead of knowing the the blessing of the covenant, they would know the curse of the covenant. They would be cut off. ...from the people and from God himself. So that was the covenant. And circumcision was a dramatization of that covenant. It was the cutting off of the flesh. And it was a sign of being in a family. The family of God. What we want though to notice is that Jesus, even though he was passive and as a child... Uh, fulfilled the law in being circumcised. He fulfilled the law in being circumcised. For, for the Jews, circumcision was almost a, a shorthand way of speaking of the law. The circumcision. Uh, that was a way of summing up the whole law. Uh, they would speak about the surrounding nations uh, who didn't follow God as the uncircumcised. They didn't have the the law or the Torah, and they didn't keep it. But if you were a Jew, then you came under the law. You took it on you as a yoke, gladly. And the sign of you being under the law was that you were circumcised. And so it was a big deal. Big deal for, for the Jews. Circumcision. When Paul is is giving his credentials. (coughs) To the Philippians. For him being a Jew. He begins with circumcision. Circumcised on the eighth day. Of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. You don't get more Jewish than me. Paul is saying. Look I was circumcised according to the law. On the very day the law required. The eighth day. The people of Israel. The tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now it's interesting when you when you read the passage here how Luke is intent on rubbing our noses into the fact that the law is being kept all the time. It's mentioned time and time again. Verse two. uh, it was according to the law of Moses. Verse 23, as it is written in the law. Verse 27, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. Verse 39, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord. Why is, why is it so important for Luke to be telling us that Jesus kept the law, that it was done according to the law? Well, straight away, uh, we're given a clue as to the reason. When Luke ties in his circumcision with his naming, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. This is all to do with his name. And what is his name? Jesus. Yes, you are. God saves. He is the Savior. He is going to save us. We are sinners. We would be lost. But Jesus will save us. And this is part. Of how he will do it. He will keep the law. On our behalf. Now. Here's an important thing for us to grasp this morning. And if the kids could grasp all these big truths. Surely we're going to grasp this as well. There are two parts to our salvation. There is. What Jesus suffered, and he suffered on our account because we deserve the penalty of breaking the law. Jesus suffered, but he also lived the life that we were to live, but have never lived. We need to live perfection if we are to live in the place of perfection, which is heaven. But we have never done that. And Jesus kept the law completely on our behalf. His life on earth was an offering up to the Father of all that we were called to live, but never did. We have marred our copybook, but Jesus never committed sin. We have broken every law that God gave in our minds and our intentions, if not in the act. But Jesus kept the law. Every aspect of the law, Jesus fulfilled and kept. And he did so that we might receive the blessing of the covenant. That we might be in the family, not cut off. That we might know peace with God, not his judgment. That we might know light, not darkness. That we might know joy, not sorrow. Jesus kept the law. Now, there's a sense in which, when Paul is writing to the Galatians in chapter 3, and he's talking about the law, this uh, little section in Galatians could almost be a commentary on what's happening in Luke 2. There he says, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, Born of a woman, born under the law. To redeem those born under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Now this is absolutely mind-blowing that the Son of God should be born Under the law. He who is God and Lord of all. Who gave the law. Himself submitted to the law. Even to circumcision. That we who are obligated to the law. Might be redeemed from it. Might be bought out from it. That we might receive the privilege of being sons family members of God. So the perfection that we need if we're going to be in heaven, a perfection that we could never live has been lived out by Jesus. This is his active obedience. He lived a life of perfection. And if we trust him, If we believe in his name, that perfection becomes ours. We are clothed in the perfection of Jesus. God will accept you in him with all his righteousness. Now, that is such a medicine. It's it's obviously such a, a... a medicine for, for sick souls that we can be saved by trusting in the righteousness of Christ but as we go on as Christians it's a great antidote to the, the inclination that we sometimes have that we can somehow or other uh, make up for our, our slips and our failures by promising to be good in the future we think that we're going to earn God's pleasure by our righteous acts in the future. And God says, no, that's not the way. You rest in Jesus. You rest in his finished work, in his perfect life. You are complete in him. So there was circumcision. And then verse 22 records another occasion. Uh, This didn't take place at the same time as a circumcision. It's 40 days later. Or sorry, 40 days after the birth of Jesus. And the law uh, said at this time that there were two things to be done. First of all, the mother had to be purified. Now, this was, a, this was simply a requirement of the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law was all about making clear in the minds of the Jews that there's a big difference between holiness and that which is unholy. That which is set apart and that which is common, that which is clean, that which is not clean. It's a principle. And there were lots of different things that drove the lesson home. And the the status of a lady after she had given birth was one of those teaching areas. And so 40 days after giving birth to a son, the woman had to come into the temple and had to uh, give a sacrifice for her purification, But also, there was uh, the consecration of the firstborn son. Every firstborn son, the law said, was to be consecrated or set apart to God. Now, uh, in theory, that meant that the son would become a priest. In practice, the priesthood came from the family of Aaron, and there were plenty of them. And so, there was provision made for the buying back or the redeeming of the son, Now, we're actually not told whether Mary and Joseph redeemed the Lord Jesus. That's an interesting uh, thought. We're just not told that. Maybe understanding that Jesus was in a unique way consecrated. They wouldn't have redeemed him back. But we're just not told what happened. But there's another interesting detail here. And that is the kind of sacrifice that Mary brought for her purification. You see, there were two options. Uh, the law said in Leviticus 12:8 that ordinarily you brought a lamb, a one-year-old lamb. However, if the family was a poor family, you brought birds, you could bring two doves or two pigeons. And friends, that was, that was a sacrifice Mary and Joseph brought. That day. The Lord Jesus was born. Into poverty. To a family that qualified. For the lower. Of the sacrifices. That the law required. And again. We come back. To one side. Of the salvation. That Jesus brought. This was. Part. Of his suffering. Remember, we said there's two ways in which Jesus has worked our salvation. He lived a perfect life that we might have it. He also suffered on our behalf the penalty of our sin. He suffered not only on the cross, but throughout his life. And this was part of his suffering. He was born into poverty. The Catechism uh, asks the question wherein. Did Christ's humiliation consist? And the answer is Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. So in these two incidents, in his circumcision and in the, the uh, offering up of purification and sacrifice, we see uh, in a wonderful way the two aspects of Jesus' work for us. He suffered for us. He came into this world in a condition of poverty and would go to a cross. But all throughout, he lived a life of perfect obedience. A life that is credited to you and to me if we have faith in him. So there's Jesus and the law and then whilst they are in the temple uh, offering sacrifice for Mary's purification, they come across two wonderful, some two godly senior citizens who are part of a group of people who have been expecting uh, God to act in redemption. We're not told by Luke Uh, If this was a large group or a small group, we don't know. But certainly Simeon and Anna were part of it. Simeon, we're told, was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's a beautiful word, isn't it? The consolation of Israel. Consolation is the comfort of Israel. He was waiting for Israel to be comforted. and Of course, that comes from... Isaiah 40, where uh, the prophet uh, opens, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. This was looking forward to a saviour who would pay for it. Jerusalem's sin and so bring consolation. And Simeon and the others were looking forward to the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel. And Simeon has been told by God, by the Holy Spirit that this child is the fulfillment of Isaiah's promise. That this is the comfort. And he comes over to Mary and Joseph in the temple. And he looks upon the baby Jesus. And he blesses God. What does he see as he looks upon Jesus? He sees first of all salvation. This is the one who was born to save his people. He sees revelation. He is the one who will bring The light of the gospel, not not just for Jews, but for all the nations. God's salvation uh, is going to go out to the whole world. And he sees glory. The glory of Israel, the glory of God. John, in his gospel, will later write, We beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, Full of grace and truth. The glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And we can imagine as Simeon is blessing God and is making these uh, amazing statements. Mary, Joseph looking at one another in quiet wonder. But Simeon has got more to say, and it's uh, more solemn this time. He says that this child that Mary is holding is destined for the rising and falling of many and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many will be revealed. And this is a, a constant theme in the New Testament. Jesus is the Savior, but Jesus always divides. He always divides. He comes to bear the penalty of sin for those who will admit that they need to be saved. Those who are honest enough to confess their sin and meek enough to believe in Jesus. For them, he is a sinner. But he also exposes the pride and the self-righteousness of others because there are others who have always said I don't want to hear this stuff about sin and judgment. And I am good enough to satisfy God myself. I need no savior. Jesus always exposes these hard thoughts. And he comes as judge as well as savior. In other words, he's like the great divine. He's like that mountain ridge on which the waters separate. Some going east, some going west. To eternally separate destinations. He is the unique saviour. He's not one on a, a buffet table of choices. He is the only way that we might be saved. And therefore, our eternal destiny turns on him. And then, speaking to Mary, he says... A sword will pierce your heart also. Mary has been prepared lovingly by God Uh, when she is to bear Jesus. The angel comes and forewarns her. And now God is using Simeon to prepare her heart for the sorrow that lies ahead of her. Mary, you're going to be heartbroken. There's going to be a sword going through your heart also. And of course there would come the day When Mary would stand at the foot of a cross and the sky above would darken and she would look upon her own son hanging there on the cross, taking his last breaths. And how Mary must have wondered over the years as she pondered what Simeon had said. Luke tells us that she's a thoughtful young woman, that she treasured up things that had been said in her heart and turned them over. How she would have turned over what Simeon was saying. What does it mean, the sword? The sword that will pierce my heart also. Mary's heart would be broken. But there was a father's heart also that would be broken. On Calvary, when Jesus died, he is the gift of the father. A Father who loved us so much that he did not withhold his son from us. There's the Stuart Town in hymn, uh, How Deep the Father's Love, where he speaks of the pain of se- searing loss. The Father turns his face away. This was the price of God the Father's determination to save us, his willingness to To give up his son, his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish. In the aftermath of the the Hillsborough uh, disaster, when when the 96 Liverpool supporters died in the crush at Hillsborough Stadium, Scores of them taken to the hospital. Christian minister went to console a father who was sitting distraught at the bedside of his son. His son had just been pronounced dead. The minister says, I can't bring you comfort, but God knows what you're going through. The man, in his understandable grief, snapped and said to the minister, What does God know about losing his son? Of course, God knows everything about losing his son, of giving his son up for sinners. And that is the great comfort. In such a situation. We have a God who knows. And who cares. Who is able to bring consolation. Into every situation. Of human distress. Who knows our grief. A sword will. Pierce your heart also. And then finally. And briefly Anna comes. Anna. With her joy. We're not quite clear. How old Anna is. Uh, (coughs) We don't know whether she was an 84-year-old woman as the NIV understands it or whether she had lived 84 years from her widowhood, which seems to be the more literal sense of the Greek. And if it is, then she was over 100. She's pretty old anyway, whichever way you look at it. She's an old saint and she's been accustomed to being around the temple because she's looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. She's one of this group of people who are looking forward to the consolation, the comfort of Israel. And she comes up, moved by God's spirit, at the very time when Simeon is with Mary and Joseph. And she praises God. She sees the child Jesus. And she blesses God. And then Anna goes off. And she talks about the child to all the rest who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, as you think about this, isn't it uh, it gracious in God's timing of the events that uh, Simeon comes first and then Anna? Uh, Anna, who had nothing but joy and, and, and gladness and a desire to tell others. She comes at the end. I think if it had been the other way around, Mary might have been tempted to think, well, this gladness that Anna has come to share has been annulled by the, the the rather solemn word that Simeon spoke about being a divider and about this strange sword. But instead, the the forewarning is followed by the note of joy. She's strengthened. Mary is strengthened by the coming of this lovely old lady with her heartfelt and sincere, unadulterated joy that God's consolation has come. I wonder what it would be like uh, if we had Anna in church this morning. Can you imagine what it would have been like if, just think about it, After the service, uh, as we were having coffee together, Anna was to come in and she was to to speak with everyone about Jesus with the the unalloyed joy that she had that day in the temple. She came up to you and said, "Ah." Jesus is the promised one. He is the great comfort that we all need. He's God's salvation. He's God's redemption. He's come to take away the, the guilt of our sin. He's come to provide us with his righteousness. Isn't it great? Jesus has come. Jesus has come. That's what she was like that day in the temple. How would we have reacted had she come in that manner to us this morning? How would you have reacted? Would you have reacted with a response of joy? Anna, I know exactly what you're talking about because he's my saviour too. I've come to know him. I've come to place my trust in him. One day I'm hoping to see him face to face. He's my comfort. Would you have responded like that? Or is it possible you might have responded with embarrassment? You would have found her enthusiasm quite uncomfortable because you don't really know what she's talking about. As we close, let's be crystal clear of the importance of knowing Jesus as our own personal saviour. This is the issue, As we come to the close of the year, this is the determining issue in our lives. There is one Savior. One Savior who is suited to all kinds of people, whatever our background. Whether we've come from backgrounds that are religious or not religious, Jesus is a Savior. Whether a person has come from a, a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Hindu background, or whether they're a radical atheist, Jesus is the only Savior and Jesus is the one that we must trust before we will find ourselves from him and from his people. There's a lovely question in another catechism, in the Heidelberg Catechism, which the, the uh, reformers used to have. And it goes like this What is your only comfort in life and death? What's your only comfort? And the answer is this. My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. And ready from now on to live for him. Beautiful words. Friends, that is real comfort. Comfort and joy. Jesus is our comfort. Jesus is our consolation. Trust in him. Yield your life to him. Receive. His salvation. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father we thank you for. uh, This record of. uh, Your faithful people. Who longed for the appearing of Jesus. The consolation of Israel. We thank you that. uh, We know so much more than Anna and Simeon knew that day in the temple. And yet they had faith in Christ and rejoiced. To see his day. Lord grant to us faith. Faith. To believe in him and to live from now on wholeheartedly, willingly, readily for him. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.